Well, good morning, everybody. Glad you're here today. Um, I don't know if you realize what you just sang. I hope you do. Uh, but you just sang, and I hope and pray that this is true of you, that when God doesn't give the answers, when there's, when there's the pain in the night, but you're longing for the morning, and you understand that's not talking about like when the sun rises and the moon comes up. That's talking about seasons in your life. That ultimately when God doesn't give the answers, when things don't seem right, that I will still trust in God. Not easy, is it? But that's what we just sang. And my hope and prayer is that we get to a place where we can trust in God, not just in good, but also in bad, even in ugly bad. Because that's what God desires for us, is to, for him to be known as our strength and our portion, as it says in his word, forever. He is our strength and our portion, perfect. And God's word declares that. So, well, glad for you to guys to be here. I'm, uh, I'm excited to be with you. Um, we are in this series called Great Stories of the Bible. We are going through some of the biggest stories in the Bible. There's really nothing in the Bible that's kind of minor or small or whatever the case is. But we are going through some of those big stories that people kind of elevate to big status in the Bible. And uh, so last week we talked about probably one of the biggest ones, David and Goliath. Uh, you can catch that online if you missed that. And we talked a whole, bu- a whole bunch of things about David and Goliath and how he defeated him and all the stuff that kind of implications for our life. Today, we're going to get into another big story, one that I would guess that the vast majority of us in this country have probably at least heard about. We may not know the story, but it, we've at least heard about it. And the story is Noah and the Ark. Noah and the Ark. Now, when I say Noah and the Ark, uh, you, you might have a lot of different thoughts or ideas that come into your head. For example, when I say Noah and the Ark, you might get this mental picture in your head because this is kind of what I see sometimes, right? There's this cute little boat and there's animals and they're all smiling, right? And it's like, whoa, life is good. There's rainbows, and it's just life is amazing, and the animals are smiling. I'm sure that they don't smell at all, and everybody loves that everybody's in their space. It's just perfect. It's like a car ride for 27 hours with our family. Everything is smiles and perfect, right? right that's that's kind of what we get when we think of Noah and the ark. It's a kid's story. Love the animals. All so cute right? Or maybe you're here and you didn't grow up like me where I kind of, these are the pictures that I saw a lot of times when my teachers taught me about Noah and the ark. And by the way, we teach Noah and the ark largely because there's animals involved, right? And the kids are like, ooh, animals, right? Ooh, a zebra, right? But maybe you think about this. Maybe you think about movies that were made based on Noah and the ark. How many of you have seen this movie, by the way? I'm just curious. I've seen it, all right? This is kind of a movie that actually kind of makes fun of Noah and the ark, and kind of makes fun of the biblical story. And by the way, it's not accurate, even slightly accurate at all, right? There's a couple of things in there. It's like, oh, okay, well, that was close. <laughs> that, was, that was about it, right? And so when you think of Noah and the ark, we think of a lot of things. But let me just tell you something about Noah and the ark. Noah and the ark is not a kid's story. Noah and the ark is not a funny movie. When it comes down to it, knowing the ark is incredibly intense. One of the most intense stories that you could ever pull out of the Bible, by far, because of what's going on and why there was an ark. 
And so we're going to dig into this, and, and I want to just uh, kind of set the stage a little bit here. I'm going to give you two words that come out of Noah and the ark, out of this story, two words that I want you to remember today. And, and they're not probably the typical words that you would think that you would have to remember out of a sermon. <laughs> it's not like holiness or uh, you know, the cross or something like that. These two words, when you hear them, and I'm not going to give them to you right up front, I'm going to give them to you as we get into this. There's two words that I want you to remember today, and I hope you walk out of here with these two words and wrestle with these two words and, and try to wrestle with what they mean in your life and for your relationship with God. All right, so we'll get to those two words, but again, they're going to come a little bit later in the message. So let's jump in. Let's start reading the book of Genesis, which is where Noah is found. And if I, I told you last week that David and Goliath is a long story, the entire chapter, 60 verses, well, this one is three chapters long. <laughs> so there's no way I can read the whole story to you and unpack the entire thing. Like that's a, there's a whole series in here, but we're going to get bits and pieces of the story and you'll kind of get the gist. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter six. We're going to start with verse nine. This is a long passage. So just listen and just kind of try to focus in on everything that's happening. There's a lot going on here. All right, starting with verse nine in Genesis chapter six. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at the time. By the way, that doesn't mean he was perfect. It just means he was faithful. Okay? So not, blame, not, not blameless as in perfect, but just that he was walking with God. And it says that here. And he walked in close fellowship with God. Noah was the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. God observed all this corruption in the world, for everyone on earth was corrupt. So God said to Noah, I have decided to destroy all living creatures, for they have filled the earth with violence. Imagine the magnitude of that. God says, I've decided to wipe out every living thing that breathes. Yes, I will wipe them all out among, along with the earth. Build a large boat from cypress wood and waterproof it with tar inside and out. Then construct decks and stalls throughout its interior. Make the boat 450 foot, uh, feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Basically, it's huge. Leave an 18-inch opening below the roof all the way around the boat. That's because God knows what animals do when they all get together. <laughs> it's what we did yesterday with a shovel uh, because of our dog. Okay? Leave the space. You're going to want that, Noah. <laughs> below the roof all the way around the boat. Put the door on the side and build three decks inside the boat, lower, middle, and upper. So there's three decks inside it. Look, I'm about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on earth will die, but I will confirm my covenant with you. So enter the boat, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring a pair of every kind of animal, a male and a female, into the boat with you to keep them alive during the flood. Pairs of every kind of bird and every kind of animal and every kind of small animal that scurries along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. And be sure to take on board enough food for your family and for all the animals. So Noah did everything exactly as God had commanded him. So you probably notice right away this is not a kid's story. In fact, I didn't realize this was going to happen, but even as I read that part, that second time when God says, I'm going to destroy every living thing, like I almost had to stop reading. 
I don't know if that did something in you that catches your breath a little bit and kind of shocks you and awes you a little bit and like God's going to destroy everything that breathes. Like it, it caught me, even though I've read this multiple times this week. And so God says, I'm going to wipe out every living thing. And so Noah, I need you to do something. I need you to build this huge boat, the ark, and, and, and he gives the dimensions. Now, I, I, want us to help, I want to help us understand the size of this, this boat, this ark. It's really hard to do while we're standing and sitting in the village center right here. It's really difficult to do. But uh, for a lot of you, you will know this. If you've been uh, anywhere around or in Warrior Stadium, which is our football stadium here in Wanakee, right? If we were to put the ark into Wanakee's football stadium, Okay, if you can picture that. Some of you haven't been there, so I know this doesn't work as well. Okay, but if you can imagine the ark sitting in Wanakee on the football field with the center of the ark at the 50-yard line. Okay, by the way, this would be really weird, wouldn't it? But anyway, I'm just saying. Okay, sitting on the 50-yard line, the, the ark would stretch all the way through the end zone, across the grass, crushing the fence that's on the outside of the, the track where they run, all the way to the parking lot. On the other side, it would go all the way through the end zone, all the way past the scoreboard. The scoreboard that we just purchased for whatever money is done, squashed. It's all the way almost to the middle school, which is on the other side of the parking lot. It's higher than the press box. And it doesn't completely fill the width of the field, but it takes up a good portion of it. If you can just imagine, let me, let me put it this way. Some of this will, this, this will help a little bit more. The space inside this ark, we figured out the square footage. The space inside the ark, it would have been able to hold 450 semi-truck trailers inside. Can you, can you imagine how much space is in one? I can because I was a furniture mover <laughs> for college money, right? And I know you can get an entire house, 30,000 pounds. We, we kind of figure 30,000 pounds of stuff you can get into one semi-truck trailer. I've seen it because I've helped do it. It's an unbelievable amount of space. 450 of those could fit into the ark with all the decks. Pretty impressive, pretty amazing. So this thing is huge. In fact, just to give you an idea, they've actually made one of these. Did you guys know this? Probably a lot of you have heard it. There's, there's one, there's a picture of it. This is in Kentucky right? This is obviously their rendition of it. It's very accurate in terms of the actual dimensions, whether or not it looked exactly like this. I'm sure it probably didn't, to be honest. But this is called the Ark Encounter. It's in Kentucky. There's also a creation museum and all kinds of stuff. You can go see it, all right? But they kind of recreate it and gives you this, the immense size of this ship. It's huge. So God asked Noah to build this huge boat, but my question for us here this morning is why? Why did God wipe out every living thing? Why did God ask Noah and his family to build the ark and then to bring you know, two of every kind of animal, male and female, into the ark? Why did he kind of hit the reset button? Why did he do that? That's an important question. It's an interesting story, but we have to ask, why is it in here? Well, I want to go back to a verse that I didn't read about four verses before the start of the story. It's kind of like setting up the story before it tells you about Noah. Remember, we started with, this is the account of Noah. Well, before that, God wanted us to understand the context of why we're telling this story. Why are we talking about this guy named Noah? There's one verse that gives a very concise reason why God is hitting the reset button. 
And I want to read it because it's important. Verse 5 in chapter 6. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. And he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. There is no getting around what that just said. There's no nice way to put it. What God is saying is that that they were consistently and totally evil. I want us to understand, this is not like a sort of a bad day. This is not like there's a group of bad people uh, that were kind of doing, like corrupting everybody else. No, what this says is that everyone on the planet was consistently, which means all the time, and totally, which means completely and totally, evil. If I were to put this in an opposite way, if I were to just bring this out, it means that, God looks at the earth and saw zero good in any person except for Noah and his family. No good. Now, I want you to imagine how messed up our world now is. Can you imagine? I mean, and we have a lot of people that are good, right? I mean, we have, just, just alone, we have millions of people who are trying to follow Christ and trying to spread the love and grace and forgiveness of Jesus all over the planet. Christianity is exploding all over the place. We have some really good things happening. There's a lot of bad. But can you imagine a world where literally everyone is totally evil? Can you imagine what that would have been like? And so God can't allow that. And so this brings us to how God felt, and it brings us to how he called Noah to feel. And it's our first word that comes out of Noah in the story. And it is this word, urgency. Urgency. I want you to wrestle with that word. When it comes to your relationship with God, I want you to wrestle with that word, urgency. There's this book that you guys have probably heard about, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. And in that book, there's this chart, this time management chart. Okay, and I want to show you this chart because he kind of gives this, kind of shows our priorities. And so here's the chart. And basically, it's very simple. It's, a very, it's amazing how simple this chart is, but it's powerful. So he has these four categories. He has, he has urgent or not urgent and important and not important. He says everything falls into the, one of these four categories in your life. Everything falls into one of these four categories, okay? The first quadrant, quadrant one, these are things that are urgent and important, right? These are things like crisis stuff. These are things like emergency stuff. This is like relationship stuff, right? This is, this is when you wake up at three in the morning and you hear, uh, it's like urgent, important. We've got to clean that up. That's not good, right? How many of you love that, by the way, as parents waking up to that? That is awesome, right? That's urgent and important. Like we've got to do this now. You're not going to be like, eh, it's three in the morning. We'll wait until eight. We'll wait until the buzzer goes off. No, we're not doing that. Urgent and important, right? Urgent and important things. Uh, quadrant two. Quadrant two are things that are important, but not necessarily urgent. Okay, these would be things like exercise. Okay, now if, there's a few of you in here that you love exercise. You're weird, and it's cool. I'm just saying it, but whatever. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Some of you, you're not weird. You, you love exercise. You just love exercise. That's awesome. I love cookies. You love exercise. We're different, right? 
So, so, but for the most, most people, normal people on the planet, exercise is not something that we're like, okay, uh, we know it's important and I have to do it. Like I have to do it at lunch. I have to do it at dinner. I have to do it all this time. If I don't, I'm going to lose my job. We don't think like, if I don't do exercise, I'm gonna, no, we don't think that way. Why? Because we know we can not do exercise and still do our job. It's, it's not urgent. It's important, but it's not urgent. Right? That's, that's kind of those kind of things. Quadrant three, these are things that are urgent. It's kind of the opposite of quadrant two. These are things that are urgent. They demand our attention. They demand our time. They're interruptions in our life, but they're actually not important. Okay? This would be some calls, phone calls that you might get. How many of you love that when you see the call and it's like a 1888 number or something or some random number from Florida and you're like, I don't know about anybody in Florida. I should probably answer that. No, you probably shouldn't. <laughs> Because they're just selling you something, promise, right? I mean, that's, that's just, that's just kind of, that, that's an interruption. It's, it's urgent. It's saying, hey, answer me. Here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. You need to do this. Or email. Some emails, not all emails. Some emails are very important. Some emails, though, they're just like, they're saying, hey, I'm an email. I'm in your inbox. You better clear me out. Maybe I just think weird about email. What am I saying? But it's, but it's urgent, but it's not necessarily important. We, we shouldn't even give any time to it. And then the fourth quadrant, this is, this is tough that's not urgent, and it's also not important. This would be like playing games on your phone, right? It has no bearing on your life. It is an absolute waste of time, right? Trivia, those kind of things. I'm not saying that these things are not okay to have in your life. It's okay, but you need to minimize them because they literally are not urgent. You're not like, oh man, I've got to get to my game because I've got to get my 27 coins, daily coins. Some of you do that. I know. I know how it is. It's like, oh, swipe over and you get your little chest full of goodies yay and then they float into the corner and adds to your account and you're like yay now i can play more candy crush or whatever it is i've never played candy crush so i'm just right and and so it's 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 not urgent it's not important so here's my question as you look at that chart where does your relationship with god fall which quadrant if you're going to be honest where does sin, like if you have sin in your life, where does it fall on this quadrant? Your relationship with God, where does it fall on this? Can I tell you where it needs to fall? Regardless of whether it does, where it needs to fall is quadrant one. Every day, all day. It needs to be in the urgent and important category. Like, because literally, if, if I, we, were, we were to make a list of all the things that you like to do and everything that your life is and all that kind of stuff, like God has to be ahead of all of that. Every single thing. It, it literally doesn't matter what you put out, even if it's the name of your children. God has to supersede that. I know it's hard to wrestle with that, but it's true. God has to be in quadrant one, urgent and important. But can I tell you where I think most of the time our relationship with God falls? That's where it should fall. Do you, do you, do you know where I think it probably usually falls? Uh, quadrant three is probably a no-go. It probably doesn't usually fall there. If you don't think it's important, it's probably not going to be urgent either. And so quadrant three is probably out. My guess is the vast majority of people on the planet, their relationship with God falls in quadrant two and four. That's my guess. It is, it is something that they know is important, but it's certainly not urgent, Right? I, I'm guessing there's a lot of people that believe, okay, God exists, and I think I probably should have a relationship with God, but, you know, I don't know how to read the Bible, so I'm good. I'm just going to get up and keep going. Life is normal, right? 
It's important, but it's not necessarily urgent. Or there's a lot of other people that don't believe in God, don't want anything to do with God. And so that would be in quadrant four. There's no urgency to get to know God because he's not important. And I think we need to wrestle with this. Because what God said to Noah and what God had in himself was urgency to make things right. Didn't he? He said, Noah, I need you to get to this building the boat thing. I need you to start now. I need you to start today. Now, it took him a long time to build, but he said, I need you to get going. There's urgency. In fact, Jesus himself says this. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 through 44. These are Jesus' words. He says, so you too, he's speaking to you and I as followers of Christ, so you too must keep watch, for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Understand this, if a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You must also be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. In other words, urgency. And I love how Jesus is amazing. Jesus gives us this, this, this illustration. He says, if you knew that a burglar was coming to your house, you would do something about it right? Let me just, this is absurd, but just let's say that you got a text from somebody that you know or somebody that you don't know and they said, hey, so I'm a burglar. You have a lot of nice things. I'm coming tonight at midnight. Okay, what are you going to do at that point? You're going to be like, awesome. I get to meet somebody new. Probably not your response, right? Are you going to be like, hey, let's go on vacation. Let's pack up our stuff and get out of here. Let's just let them take it. Because No, you're going to call the police. You're going to call your friends. You're going to gather stuff. You're going to barricade the doors. You're going to put a new security camera in. You're going to put tons of cameras up. You're going to booby trap it like Home Alone, right? That's what I see, like Macaulay Culkin, like setting up paint cans, all that stuff, right? Like, I'm ready. And I, and I guarantee you, you get the text at 6 o'clock at night. You're not being like, well, we'll get to prepping our house for that. No way. You quit dinner. Like you stop eating and you're urgent and you're going to prep your house. You're going to make sure that you are safe. Am I right? That's what Jesus is talking about. He's saying you've got to be urgent about your relationship with Jesus, with your relationship with God, because a lot of people, they just kind of go through life. Uh, let's be honest, guys. Let's be honest about where we're at. And we, we stick him in quadrant two and four, and we say these are not urgent or not important. Or, yeah, he's important, but he's not. It's not really, I don't, I don't think that there's, this doesn't have bearing on my life. Absolutely. He has more bearing on your life than you under, ever will realize. So we have to have urgency. And Noah and the story of Noah shows us that. So that's the first word I want you to remember. When it comes to your relationship with God, urgency. Is there urgency? behind what you're doing and how you're growing. All right, so let's go back to the story of Noah. So Noah and his family, they build the ark, all right? And they all go in. There's a whole bunch of animals. I'm sure that was really nice and quiet in there, right? They close, they're in the ark and they do all this stuff. And now I want to read what happens, right? Genesis chapter seven. So we're in the next chapter forward. Again, this is a long story. This is what happens after they're, now they're all in the ark. For 40 days, the floodwaters grew deeper covering the ground and lifting the boat high above the earth. As the waters rose higher and higher above the ground, the boat floated safely on the surface. Finally, the water covered even the highest mountains on the earth. By the way, the earth looked very different back at this time. Okay, I'll just say that. I'm not going to get into all the science and all the stuff, but the earth looked very different at this point. 
Okay? In fact, the flood changed it more toward what we see now. So finally, the water covered even the highest mountains on the earth, rising more than 22 feet above the highest peaks. So what I, what I, what I could do today is I could spend some time going to the scientific side of this. Right? I could give you all the evidence that we have on planet Earth for this cataclysmic, huge planet-wide flood that destroyed everything. There's plenty of evidence, actually. Now, a lot of people will look at that evidence and they will come up with other theories. You'll find all those, too. But there's plenty of evidence to show that there was this cataclysmic, massive event on our planet. I could spend time doing that, but I don't want to. But what I do want to get is I want to get to the next very important aspect of this story. Kind of going toward that first or that second word. And I want to go back to the verse right before something that I just read. So Noah and the ark, or Noah and his family and the animals, they all go into the ark. All right? But it's what's interesting is before, once they get into the ark and before the floodwaters start, I want to read something that happens. And this is something that hadn't popped out to me quite fully before. It's Genesis chapter 7, verse 16. This is right before that section that we just read where the waters come up. It says, they're in, they're in the ark, the animals are in the ark. It says, then the Lord closed the door behind them. This is really important. I want you to notice, Noah didn't close the door. He didn't call his sons over there and say, hey boys, get that done. An animal didn't accidentally bump the post and close the door. The water didn't come up and slam and close the door. Who closed the door? God closed it. What does that tell you? That tells you that God is taking full responsibility for what is about to happen. But there's also something else to this. I don't know if you noticed, but when I read the dimensions of the ark and how Noah was supposed to build it, it kind of gave the dimensions, but did you know that there was a really severe lack of sails, rudders, steering wheels, or anything for Noah to be able to guide and direct that ship at all? Did you notice that? There's literally no way Noah can control the ark. There's physically no way he can do it. And God designed it that way. God closes the door, and he says to Noah and his family and the animals, I got this. Just trust me. And this brings up a really important point about your relationship with God and my relationship with God. I want us to understand what God has just done with Noah. God came to Noah and he asked Noah, hey Noah, I need you to build this massive boat. Right? Because the, the world is going to be destroyed. I need you to build this boat. And then he builds that boat. And by the way, it took Noah probably, we don't know for sure, but we know we have a range. We think that it probably took him somewhere between 50 to 75 years to build. Can you imagine a building project? And God says, so I need to ask you to do something. It's going to take you 75 years or so. Okay, it's a little thing, Right. It took probably 57. I mean, we're talking Noah's highly involved in this, like big time involved. But then there came a point where God says, okay, Noah, awesome job. Hands off. You got all the food, you got the animals. Fantastic. Now, just watch, just wait. 
And this brings up our second word. And like I said, this is one that you're not going to expect. <laughs> it's probably one of the weirdest words for a point in a sermon ever made. First, God wants us to be urgent. But then the second word that he wants us to understand is this word tandem. Yeah, see, didn't expect that one, huh? I know, weird. I, I thought it was weird. I almost didn't use it because it's so weird. But God really pressed hard on me on this one. See, God asked Noah to build a boat and did all this stuff, but then he closed the door and he says, there's no rudder, there's no sails, there's nothing you can do now. You've done everything I've asked you to do. Now I need you just to trust me and allow me to work. If I were to explain this, let me just explain it this way. So I have a picture of this bike, okay? You guys have probably know what this bike is called. This is called a tandem bicycle, right? That's, that's what the name of this kind of a bike is. You can have, you know, all the different kinds, but this is, this is a tandem bicycle. And, and the concept is really simple, right? You have two seats for two people. You have two sets of pedals so that both can be pedaling. You have two sets of handlebars, right? And notice how they're oriented. There is one person in front and one person that has to be kind of locked in position behind that person. That person has to follow the other person. But there's something really important about a tandem bicycle that also is a parallel to your relationship with God. And that is, when you're on the bike with God, there's only one set of handlebars that actually directs and steers the bike. You notice that? There's only one set of handlebars that actually directs the direction of the bike. And so, here's what God does with you and I. God invites you to join him on the bike. We're talking about life here. God invites you to join him. In fact, that's the whole point of Jesus. Do you realize that? That God, the whole point of sending Jesus to this planet was because he knew that we can't get on the bike because if we have sin, we can't join God. You realize that? If you have sin in your life, if you have not given your life to Christ, this is why people, when they pass from this earth, they will not spend eternity with God. They will spend eternity separated from God because you have to join the bike before you leave this planet. This is the whole point of Noah and the story. God sends Jesus to die on the cross to be the bridge and the forgiveness for our sins so that we can hop on the bike. Because God can't ride with somebody that has sin. Because he's perfect, he's holy. He literally can't exist with sin. And so, but God knew that, so God solves the problem by giving Jesus to us who dies on the cross in our place and, and becomes the forgiveness of our sins and then he raises from the grave so he defeats death as well. And now God, through Jesus, has offered you and I an opportunity to join him on the bike. He says, hey, hop on. We're gonna do some amazing things. In fact, we're gonna do things for eternity. This time on earth is short. Your life on earth is short. But trust me, we're going to do great things not only in this life, but beyond this life. And he invites you and I to join him on the tandem bike. So, does he ask us to pedal, like to be involved, to build an ark? Yes. Does he ask us to, to hold on to the handlebars? Yes. Does he ask us to be involved in what he is doing? Absolutely. In fact, he almost demands it. He says, get on the bike. Come on, let's go. 
But he needs you to understand that just like this, how he needs you to understand is God is in the front. He's got the handlebars, the ones that actually direct and guide where you're going to go and what you're going to do, where you're going to live, how your life's going to be. And I don't know about you, but if you're riding tandem on a bicycle, you better trust the person that's on the front. <laughs> right? Hey, this would be fun. Let's just turn the wheels really quick going 40 down the hill. Right? You got to trust that that person's not going to do that. Right? And so God says, you're oriented behind me. Follow me. I will show you where to go. I'm directing the bike. Yes, I want you to pedal. I want you to be involved because I want you to experience the joy and the thrill and the excitement of being in relationship with me, of following me. This is going to be awesome. So let's pedal together. Let's do this. Let's be in sync with each other. But I'm guiding the bike. In fact, it says this when it talks about Jesus in John chapter 12. I want to read this to you. It says, but to all who believed Jesus, it's talking about Jesus, but to all who believed in Jesus and accepted Jesus, Jesus gave the right to become children of God, to be adopted into his family. They are reborn. Literally, your life has changed. You're reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. Literally, you are born again. What God desires and what God calls every single one of us to, everyone in here, every person on the planet, past, present, and future, God calls every single person on the planet, he invites every single person on the planet to have a second birth. You were born physically, but what a lot of people miss is that God needs you to be born again, spiritually. And that's the whole point of Jesus. When you're born physically, you're born into sin and into a broken world. And God says, I've solved the second problem though. Now you need to be born again by accepting Jesus, by believing that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. The only way to, is to accept the free gift of Jesus that God has given so the question comes down to this very simple. Have you given your life to Jesus? It gets that simple. Have you chosen to follow Christ? Do you believe that he died on the cross for you? Do you believe that he actually rose from the dead three days after he died? Have you given your life to Jesus? If I were to put it in our vernacular today, have you jumped on the bike? <laughs> because here's what I fear a little bit, and I wonder, even at Northridge. My guess is we have quite a few people that do what a lot of people in American churches do. People show up. People sit in the seats and in the pews, movable chairs if you're in a village center. But they never actually take the step of giving their life to Jesus. 
I want you to understand if you show up at church every Sunday but you never give your life to Christ, you're not on the bike and you're still headed for eternity without God. I'm gonna tell you the honest truth because I love you. And God tells you because he loves you. And a lot of us in here, we know people, tons of people in our lives who are not at all on the bike with God. You know it in your soul, deep down. You know they want nothing to do with God. They have not given their life. And so my question to you this morning is very simple. Have you given your life to Christ? Have you accepted Jesus? In a moment, I am going to pray. And if you want to give your life to Christ, you know you haven't. If you're, if you're just kind of sitting here and you're going, I'm scared, I don't even know if I've ever done this. I don't know if I'm on the bike. Let me just tell you, there's a certain way to do that. Right? It's, it's by you simply saying, I believe Jesus died on the cross. I believe that he can forgive my sins. And you accept it. You commit the rest of your life to live for Jesus. But you have to believe. You have to accept. You have to take that step. Attendance in church doesn't get it. Being a good person doesn't get it done. Singing songs louder than everybody else around you doesn't get it done. It doesn't matter what you want to plug into that place. Saying the Lord's Prayer 12,000 times doesn't get it done. You have to give and surrender your life to Jesus. So in a moment, I'm going to pray that prayer. And if you want to do that, I encourage you to do that. This, is, this could be your day where you cross from not being on the bike to joining with God. But you have to offer your life to Jesus and say, I'm going to do my best to follow you. Trust me, you're not going to be perfect. I am not even close to the universe of perfect. But that's why we need Jesus. So will you give your life to him today? Will you be urgent about it and realize that he invites you to live in tandem with him? So in a moment, I'm going to pray. And if you want to join me in that prayer, you don't have to say it out loud, but you need to be honest and open, genuine before God. And then we'll have you do something after that. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for sacrificing yourself on the cross for our sins. I thank you for giving your life for ours. And if there's anybody in here who, as we've been talking, that they just realize there's a real good possibility that they have never given their life to you, Jesus. Or maybe they're just not sure, and, and so they want to make sure that they're on the bike with you. I pray that they would pray this prayer. They can pray it out loud if they want, 
but that they would pray this prayer genuinely to you. There's nothing special about these words, God, you know that, but what's special is the fact that they're making a choice, a decision to give their life to you. So I pray that anybody in here who wants to give their life to Jesus, they would just pray this simple prayer. Jesus, I believe in you. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for resurrecting from the dead for me. Today, I accept you. I commit my life to you. And I ask you to forgive me of my sins so that I can be a follower of Jesus. For those that prayed that prayer, I pray that you would just encourage them. Help them to understand that now their their soul is sealed in heaven to spend eternity with God. But also for everybody else in here, maybe there are people in here who have given their life to Christ, but if they were being honest, their relationship with you is very squarely in quadrant two, or it'd be very hard to admit, maybe even in quadrant four. They've just kind of put you on the back burner. Everything else in life has kind of just taken over. I pray that you would help them to remember that they, you've called them to be urgent in their relationship with you. And you've called them to go and to live in tandem with your love and your power. Change us. Renew us. Help us to be born again. I pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.